On April 21, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted Thad Dunning to present his recent work, Does Habit Breed Political Participation? Experimental Evidence on Tax Compliance in Uruguay. Thad Dunning is Robeson Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley, and directs the Center on Politics of Development. This work studied the effects of a randomized lottery in Montevideo, Uruguay, which is designed both to reward and induce tax compliance, a critical aspect of citizen-state interaction and a key facet of state capacity. His findings on the importance of habit have both social scientific and policy implications. This event was part of the Comparative Democracy Seminar Series. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. So thanks everybody for coming here today. It is an honor for, for us to have Thad Dunning in our Comparative Democracy Seminar. So for those of you who don't know Thad, he's Robson Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley, where he also directs the Center on the Politics of Development. Thad has a vast research agenda and has produced many contributions to political science. Substantively, he has focused on ethnic voting, political representation, clientelism, and the consequences of natural resource wealth for democracy. And his area of research is Latin America, Africa, and India. Thad has also many methodological writings that focus on causal inference, statistical analysis, natural experiments, and the integration of quantitative and qualitative research. Thad has written three award-winning books including Crude Democracy, Natural Resource Wealth and Political Regimes, Natural Experiments in the Social Sciences, and Brokers, Voters, and Clientelism. His articles have also appeared in leading journals. Before joining the, the University of the Berkeley faculty, Thad was professor of political science at Yale. And many of us have had a chance to get to know him when we were in Berkeley, and so it's a pleasure for us to have you today. Thank you very much for coming. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks um, so much, Candelaria, for that kind introduction. And it's great to be here and uh, really looking forward to your feedback on this uh, work in progress. Uh, that's joint work with Felipe Monestier, Rafael Pinero, Fernando Rosenblatt, uh, and Guadalupe Tuñon, who are uh, at the Universidad de la República in Uruguay, um, Univers Universidad Diego Portales, and at Berkeley, um, respectively. So political participation uh, often involves routinized, repeated behaviors um, in realms as distinct as voting, uh, interactions with the police, um, or tax compliance, which is what we'll focus on in this, in this paper. Uh, and um, the fact of repetition of behaviors in those realms might have itself um, a causal effect on behavior. Um, why is this important? Because we often observe um, virtuous or vicious cycles in civic participation, um, and habit, habit may be part of the reason um, that that occurs. Um, and so there's some evidence on this in political science um, for um, the act of voting. Uh, and so, uh, among other studies, Gerber and Green and a co-author have a paper where they show that voters who are randomized to a get-out-the-vote message in one election vote at higher rates in a subsequent election. Mark Meredith has an interesting paper where he shows that people who were just eligible to vote in a presidential, in a past presidential election by virtue of being just over 18 years old, vote at higher rates in the next presidential election compared to people who were just less than 18 years old in the previous election. So some interesting evidence that, that seems to suggest a role for habit uh, in, in political participation. Um, if habit has a, 
uh, strong influence over in realms like voting, it may also uh, that may also imply that interruptions of habit uh, have important consequences. So it may be, for example, that residential mobility and consequent interruption, interruptions in habit um, have a, uh, an important impact on producing turnout disparities um, between young and old voters. So there's been some work um, in, in, in that domain. Um, and so, um, as I mentioned, the possibility, this implies the possibility that, there, that habit could be part of the explanation for virtuous or vicious um, cycles, if you will, in, in, in civic participation, and also raises the question of how habits are formed and how they might be disrupted. So the work on tax compliance is much less advanced um, empirically than the work on, on voting, in part because it's difficult to study. It's hard to, say, randomly assign people's past tax compliance. Um, but substantively, I think it's, it's quite an important topic because tax compliance has been such a problem for states around the world, authoritarian and democratic states alike, um, and particularly in developing countries. Um, and so inducing greater uh, tax compliance um, is, a, is an important public policy and social scientific uh, problem as well around the world. So in Montevideo, Uruguay, well, where we're doing empirical work in this project, um, uh, tax, despite the presence of a apparently fairly effective uh, state in comparative terms in Latin America, um, serious non-compliance with taxes persists. So these are municipal, this shows, for example, a sample of municipal property tax accounts. Um, and you can see that um, between 2000 and 2014, you can see that looking at the middle panel, about 70% of taxpayers pay their taxes on time. Um, that leads to growing accumulated debt in terms of payments owed. Um, in the left panel over time. Um, and the municipality uses a measure, which will be important for us empirically too, um, uh, a, a measure of good tax paying. Um, good taxpayers are those who are not only up to date on their uh, taxes at a particular moment in time, but have been up to date over the previous year. Um, forgive the apparently normative language, it's the municipalities, not mine. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean to imply um, uh, a necessary ethical lapse on the part of these these taxpayers, but only about fifty percent of taxpayers are uh, are uh, are designated as good taxpayers um, at any point in time. We'll see that although the, there's some movement into this category over time, so there is some movement in and out of the good taxpayer category over time, but there's also quite a bit of structural stability, um, and I'll present some evidence on that over, over time. That is, people who are good taxpayers tend to be good taxpayers over time. People who are bad taxpayers also tend to be bad taxpayers over time, suggesting a plausible role for habit, um, among other factors, in producing, uh, in producing that, uh, that kind of pattern. Okay, what's interesting about this context is that typical explanations for uh, weak tax compliance in developing countries um, won't have a lot of explanatory water. Um, so the kind of the, the most bare ba bones uh, approach to tax compliance might say, well, you know, individuals weigh the benefits of evasion uh, against the cost of punishment times the probability that they'll be caught um, or something like that. And so accounts of non-compliance in developing countries often focus on low P um, in that framework. So Michael Mann talks about infrastructural power, the power of the state to project its reach, um, and, and in particular to monitor uh, monitor tax compliance. Um, and so from that point of view, a major impediment to tax compliance is weak monitoring capacity. In this setting, though, uh, local, uh, given appraised values, taxpayers' obligations um, are known. 
Um, and so the problem of fomenting tax plans reduces to a, maybe a simpler problem, which is just getting taxpayers to pay their obligations on time. Um, uh, and notwithstanding that apparently simpler problem in the absence of monitoring problems, there's serious noncompliance, um, as we saw in the previous um, slide. Indeed, interviews with policymakers uh, around Latin America, our interviews with policymakers around Latin America suggest there are some serious impediments to enforcing uh, regulations, laws uh, that allow, in principle, states to assess fines and even expropriate po properties. Um, in the case of property taxes, if taxes aren't paid. In fact, um, we find, through, at least in our, our interviews, the suggestion is that um, expropriations are exceedingly rare, um, that the threat of expropriation may have some power, um, that negotiations between individual taxpayers and the state take place under the shadow of possible expropriations. But in fact, the typical arrangement is an agreement between an, uh, a seriously delinquent taxpayer and a city government to regularize his or her accounts, get on a payment plan, play some, pay some quotas. But nonetheless, taxpayers remain indebted um, over, over time for substantial, uh, substantial periods. So it's hard to enforce tax compliance through negative incentives in these contexts um, for whatever reason for political reasons that probably stretch beyond inefficiencies in the judiciary. Municipal governments are close to the people. Uh, Alicia's worked on the problem of selective enforcement. There are lots of political reasons that, uh, that, uh, that taxpayers um, uh, may not pay and that policymakers may not enforce. So that might be one reason that municipalities have increasingly turned to so-called positive incentives or rewards programs for good taxpayers around Latin America. Um, so you can see some examples of this from Mexico, Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, um, Peru, Col Colombia. Uh, some of the, uh, will in fact study in this project, we're studying one of the earliest instances of rewards program in Montevideo, which started in 2004 and gives a year free of tax payments to good taxpayers who are randomly selected in a, in a lottery. But there are lots of other kinds of rewards programs around Latin America. Some of them raffle cars, houses. Um, some of them simply offer discounts to good, to good taxpayers. And in fact, these are quite prevalent. Um, and so we took a, a sample of municipalities around the region, looked for evidence of rewards programs. Um, and, and in fact, Uruguay is the top scorer with 79% of its 18 municipalities uh, offering <coughs> rewards programs. But, uh, but throughout the region, they're pretty prevalent. So Brazil, about a quarter of municipalities offer some kind of rewards program. In Ecuador, it's 37%. Colombia is a quarter, um, around 10% in Argentina and Mexico. Um, some countries don't have them, but this is clearly a policy innovation um, that's catching on in, in Latin America and I think uh, elsewhere in the developing um, world too. And so the one question one might ask is whether these rewards programs, um, these positive incentives, so to speak, work um, to induce tax compliance. And uh, officials that we interviewed seem to think they do. Um, Daniel Chijo here from Tigre in Buenos Aires says, today with the municipal service tax, we have a compliance rate of 85%, whereas when we started the lotteries in 2009, the compliance rate was 68%. Um, uh, my my co-author likes to joke that that might be an example of casual inference rather than causal inference, but there you, but there you have it. Um, tax uh, officials and, and other officials we interview think this, this 
these texts, these programs are effective. Um, and there's a plausible theory, maybe, through which they would be effective um, in inducing compliance. Not only might they sustain compliance among good taxpayers, but they may induce so-called bad taxpayers to comply to become eligible for the rewards. So Betu uh, Tricoli here says, by the second year of our rewards program, many indebted people went to look for payment plans so that they could become eligible for the lotteries. After the results of these lotteries were shown, a lot of municipalities adopted uh, adopted these policies. So they could work. It seems unlikely that mater the material incentives are themselves sufficient, at least in some kind of strict uh, rationalist sense. In the, you know, in the, in the uh, policy we're going to study here, good taxpayers win a year free of tax payments with probability one out of uh, 5,000 in any tax period. So if Z is the annual amount of taxes due, then the expected sort of gross of the cost of, uh, expected cost of punishment, gross benefit of paying years taxes is Z over 5,000 minus Z, which doesn't look like a, a, good, a good deal for the, for the taxpayer. So um, you know, you can say that the paradox of paying taxes parallels in this way that the paradox of voting. Now, there are lots of reasons people nonetheless vote. Um, th those reasons may extend to the case of tax compliance. There can be an expressive benefit. Particularly, it may be that these lotteries that we're studying influence the expressive benefit of paying taxes. So, for example, they might influence perceptions of the transparency or fairness or equity um, of the tax system. And you can find, we found in our interviews, perceptions that this was the case too. So here's G Geraldo Cruz, who says the best weapon against noncompliance is transparency, and saying that in the context of uh, of, of a discussion of the lottery. So these lotteries, you know, they're a transparent way to reward good taxpayers, and maybe that has important effects. Um, but the point we want to emphasize here, and I think what's, what's useful um, for both policy and, and, and social science, scientific purposes in the program we study here, is that tax holidays, the kind that we're going to study, are habit interrupters. Um, uh, and in fact, they serve as a um, um, exogenous, if you will, interruption of the habit of paying taxes, um, and therefore are useful because they help us under, understand the influence of habit uh, on tax payment. So, you know, tax payment can be automated through behavioral repetition. Social psychologists talk about habit as a, a re basically a repetition of a response in the same or very similar context. So a habit is formed through that repetition. Um, uh, we're not going to have a big commitment to whether, you know, it's the repetition or the context that matters. And in our study, the context is going to remain fairly similar. Um, and what's going to get interrupted is, is the repetition. But to extend the kind of standard model of you know, tax compliance, um, one could sort of uh, posit that a taxpayer doesn't comply if uh, an inequality like this holds. Now, these are all the kind of standard terms that we've seen in previous slides. You've got the material benefits. Um, uh, you know, the, the evasion brings Z. You forego the, uh, the, the return of Z with probability 1 out of 5,000. You forego the expressive benefits of paying taxes if you don't comply. Um, there's also always the threat of punishment. But um, uh, there's some, there may be some stock of habit that influences current uh, compliance. Um, and so um, defining gamma t equals 1, if the taxpayer doesn't comply, then the stock is given by the sum of past compliance, may be weighted by some parameter theta. I'm not trying to be committed to a formalization of this. I'm just trying to motivate an idea um, for the empirical work. Um, what's important about this is that there, there are two implications. 
One is that because current consumption is a function of pa all the past, sorry, current uh, compliance is a function of uh, the history of past compliance, one can easily get, uh, through behavioral repetition, of two types of taxpayers, those who tend to always comply, typically comply, um, and those who don't. So you have both good and bad taxpayers, some movement in and out, you know, particularly if you add a little uh, random noise, if you will, to individual tax payment. But those are pretty standard structural categories. Um, but that secondly, that exogenous changes to tax compliance behavior at t minus 1 can have effects that last beyond period t. So, so um, the, there are knock-on effects to habit. You get effects that, la that, that uh, can interrupt uh, the habit of paying taxes and therefore immediate payment of taxes, but there can also be some longer-lasting effect. So the crucial fact that we're going to use in the study is that tax, tax holidays interrupt the, uh, the habit of paying taxes. And so we're going to do two things. We're first going to study the impact of tax holidays among taxpayers that are eligible to win them. Um, so we're using a natural experimental approach. We're going to distinguish the effects of habit disruption from possible informational effects using a field experiment I'll describe um, in, in a bit. Um, and then that, that field experiment, along with the survey experiment, will also use this, allow us to study citizens' motivations for tax compliance, in particular whether rewards or punishments um, uh, do more to incentivize um, tax compliance. Okay, so let me turn to the description of the empirical study. And I should mention, um, I know I, I speak and then we have a Q&A, but please um, interrupt with comments, comments or questions um, at any time. Okay, so let me, let me describe the empirical context here. So um, the national lottery, uh, <coughs> uh, sorry, the, the, the tax paying authority in the city of Montevideo uses the national lottery to select taxpayer accounts for prizes. Um, and so um, uh <coughs> each time there's a national lottery, which happens every two months, uh, the uh, Final four digits of the winning number are used to select tax-paying account, uh, tax accounts for tax holidays across four different kinds of taxes. Um, so this is the uh, bi-monthly lottery for good taxpayers. Um, and here we have the, uh, <coughs> a general municipal tax, kind of a head tax. We have a vehicle tax. We have a property tax and a, and a sewage tax. Um, and notice that all of these account numbers in this particular lottery, which was February of 2009, end in the, in the same four digits of the winning national lottery. Um, so, so all taxpayer accounts that end in 8662 in this example are selected for tax holidays. Um, so this is uh, effectively a random sample of taxpaying accounts in Montevideo, um, and it's also, it also implies random assignment to eligibility for a tax holiday. So we want to use this as a, as a natural experiment to study the effect of winning on future tax compliance, um, i.e., the effect of the interruption of the habit of paying taxes on, on, on compliance. Um, and so we use um, all taxpayer accounts that were selected as winners so that we're eligible for holidays um, as our treatment group. Um, construction of the control group takes a little bit of care because we don't want to just use taxpayers who are eligible today. The treatment group consists of taxpayers who are eligible as of the date of each past lottery. Um, and so to construct the con control group, we follow the same random procedure that constructed the treatment group. Um, we use a random four-digit number other than the winning number for each lottery since 2004, and we select 
all taxpayer accounts um, ending in those, those four digits. Um, so we end up with a, um, a treatment and control group that are pretty spread through the um, municipality. Um, they're balanced. I'm not obviously not uh, uh, expecting you to infer balance from, from these plots. Um, but they're, they're balanced on a whole bunch of, uh, of uh, covariates, as one would expect. I'll get to, I'll get to that more in a second um, due to the randomization. Um, uh, uh, and, um, and so we're going to use the comparison between eligible taxpayers as of the date of each lottery, some of whom actually won the lottery and some of whom didn't, um, to, to pin down the effects of, uh, of tax bank. Now, um, the process is that a, a winning taxpayer account um, is first screened for eligibility. So there are winning numbers that aren't eligible for the tax uh, holiday by virtue of being ineligible, by virtue of not being good taxpayers as of the date of the lottery. So those are bad taxpayers or ineligible taxpayers with the, the right account numbers. We'll use those as well um, in our analysis for placebo tests. Um, but, uh, but, but the process is that once the account is screened, the municipality sends a letter to the um, taxpayer account's address and come down to City Hall, register yourself um, for a year free of tax payments. Um, there's some non-compliance, people who are eligible and win but don't go to the municipality. Some of them are not physical persons. They're personas jurídicas or corporations or firms rather than, um, rather than individual uh, people. So I'll talk, talk about that a little bit um, too. But uh, going by assignment to the treatment, we have um, uh, a study group that looks like this. So the bold uh, rows are the ones that we use to estimate the effects of winning the lottery or eligibility to win the lottery um, for each of the four types of the taxes, property, vehicle, sewage, and head. The unbolded rows are bad taxpayers with winning account numbers. And as I say, they, they didn't actually win anything. Um, uh, they weren't eligible to win anything, but we can use the data on them to assess some, uh, validate some assumptions of the design. Um, use it as a placebo test and use it to evaluate the uh, kind of the assumption that the lottery number itself didn't have an effect on outcomes, so kind of exclusion restriction. So, um, so that's what we have. So, so here's our main analysis. Um, and so let me explain what we're doing in these plots. Um, we're centering at zero for each taxpayer in our study group the date at which they won the lottery or could have won the lottery. So the, the relevant date at which they were selected into the um, study group. Um, time on the horizontal axis is measured in bimonthly lottery periods. Um, so, so the lottery takes place every, um, every two months and, and some of the taxes are paid every four months. So then there are two lotteries, like for the property tax, there are two lotteries um, in between um, each tax payment period. Um, each taxpayer has a probability of one in 10,000 of winning one of the lotteries. So the probability of winning either one is one in, one in 5,000. So the probability of winning both is very low. So before zero, we have pre-treatment. Uh, values. Um, and so the first thing we can do is look and see are the treatment and the control groups, i.e. The, um, the good taxpayers with winning numbers and the good taxpayers with losing numbers balanced um, on a highly prognostic pretreatment covariate, which is the, the past proportion of good taxpayers in each group. Um, and so if we're, we're studying the impact on compliance, a really good thing to look for balance on is previous compliance, and that's what these plots um, look at. In fact, we see balance. Um, we have some you know, for, formal tests too, but, uh, but the plots graphically show balance on the, um, on, on, on the past compliance behavior 
of uh, units in our treatment in the control group. Next, we do a placebo test, which is the bad taxpayers. Remember, these people didn't win anything. They just had winning account numbers. So if the if exclusion restriction holds, we shouldn't see any effect for those taxpayers. And in fact, we don't. Um, the, the winning lottery number group and the losing lottery number group is balanced. I should mention we are going to use the gray strip when we estimate treatment effects, because at the edge of the gray strip is the point at which taxpayers who won the lottery have to return to paying taxes again. So we're not going to measure differences between the groups during the period when they're exonerated from taxes. Sorry, Ted, the yeah. Good yeah. So this is a municipal measure of uh, good taxpaying behavior. They're all bad taxpayers at the time of the lottery. But what happens mechanically, we select them at the time of the lottery, so they're mechanically all bad taxpayers. Um, but of course, there's some, you can think of it as a regression effect, you know, there's some um, movement in and out of those categories. Um, and so what, what, you know, we're going to look at differences between the red and the blue uh, plots for evidence of treatment effects, for balance tests, and for placebo outcome tax tests. But the overall shape of the figure is also kind of informative um, in the sense that although there's movement in and out of the categories. So, you know, not all the good taxpayers, good as defined at the date of the lottery, were always good taxpayers. Um, they tended to be much better taxpayers than the ones who were bad taxpayers at the date of the lottery. So there's some structural stability um, in, those, in those categories over time. Okay, so what's the effect of winning um, among good taxpayers? Turns out it's negative. Um, so far from inducing compliance, um, the lottery actually inhibits uh, future tax payment um, among, among winners. And the effect is about, using this measure, the proportion of good taxpayers is about three percentage points. It's an effect that lasts up to about three years. Um, uh, and so from a policy perspective, suggests that um, you know, the, the program probably isn't a good idea, at least so far, insofar as it, it exists to induce tax compliance. That may have other effects. I'll talk about that a little at the end. It may indeed shape attitudes towards the transparency and equity of the state. Um, but but it's, a, it's a bad financial deal for the municipality. Um, it uh, not only loses money during the period of, ex of the exoneration, but has these knock-on negative effects on future tax compliance. So we actually presented these results to the municipal policymakers in Montevideo. They're interested in it. Um, and, and actually, um, although I'm a political scientist, so I know public policy isn't supposed to work like this, you know, they're really, like, really interested in improving the program. And, and uh, you know, they have every incentive, I guess, to do so. And so we're thinking about helping collaborate um, with them on some tweaks to the, to the program that might be useful for better um, tax compliance in the future. Okay, um, so those are, those are the effects. Now, for our purposes here, uh, the key question is whether habit is the mechanism. So is, is, is this happening because people's habit of paying taxes is being disrupted and that's leading them to comply at lower um, rates? And so we have a few different kinds of evidence. One is um, heterogeneity and effects across types of taxes. So we didn't realize this when we started the study, but the vehicle tax in particular actually doesn't tend to interrupt the habit of paying taxes. Um, so that's because um, even though it's sometimes assessed retroactively, it's sometimes taken retroactively and sometimes prospectively, it, the value of the exoneration often doesn't cover the full, um, uh, the full debt the taxpayers have 
um, because vehicle value, because there's inflation, um, because unlike property taxes, the vehicles don't tend to be, uh, the vehicle values don't tend to be um, uh, fixed, the tax rates don't tend to be fixed. And so people continue paying perhaps some small amount during the year of their exoneration. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's just suggestive, but the cross tracks, the heterogeneity and effects across uh, taxes is, is broadly consistent with the idea that the effects are going to be strongest where the habit of payment is interrupted. Um, and so we see them in particular for, for property taxes um, and, and not for vehicle taxes. Um, for sewage and, and head, the evidence is, is a little bit weaker. Um, those are pretty low-powered um, tests. Um, our study groups are, are smaller. Um, in those cases. So we don't think this is dispositive, um, you know, because um, for one thing, uh, the people who pay a vehicle tax may be quite different than the people who, who pay property tax. One thing we've been working on that's been actually quite, quite slow is um, cross-referencing account numbers across, uh, across the types of taxes, and we're still kind of working on that so that we can look at the effects of, say, the vehicle tax for people who pay both property and, and vehicle tax. Okay, so that's suggestive, not dispositive. One thing we can do, though, is look at variation in the way people pay. Um, and so um, uh, many people pay taxes by going to local um, kiosks and, uh, or down to City Hall and paying their taxes on a, on a bi-monthly basis or triennial basis. Um, there are some taxpayers, however, who have signed up for automatic debits. This is increasingly prevalent. Um, we looked at the historical data to see who was signed up for automatic debit at the time they won the lottery. The feature of automatic debit that's nice for these purposes is that when you're on it, your tax payments recur automatically once the exoneration is, is over. And so for the property tax, indeed, we don't see any negative effects, discernible negative effects, for people who pay with automatic payments. Um, we do see negative effects only for people who pay the tax um, manually. So, yeah, so that, so that suggests, you know, that's, again, a, a point of evidence in, in favor of the habit hypothesis, yeah. <coughs> so looking both at, at the credit card and people who don't claim the holiday? Right. Yeah, um, we haven't done a lot of analysis. What we do do is an IV analysis for people who claim the credit. Um, to look at effects, but we, we haven't disaggregated by strata of who, who claims the, 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 thing, the thing or not. Um, in, mainly because our concern would be that that's you know, sort of a self-selected function of the taxpayer's attributes um, that's post-treatment, that, and therefore you know, it's not, we don't have an unbiased comparison across people who claim um, and, and don't claim, or within strata of claimers even, um, we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have those kinds of comparisons. So we use the claiming um, for an IV analysis. I won't uh, present the IV here, but, it, but uh, the effects get a lot bigger. Um, so the compliance rate is about 35% actually. So the negative effects that we see get a lot bigger when we adjust for the non-compliance. Um, so basically upweighted by the, by the proportion of compliers in the, in the denominator. Um, so we see, we see big negative effects in that, in that respect. Okay, um, so you know there are alternative explanations beyond habit. And so part of what we also do is look at look at those alternative explanations a little bit more seriously. So we thought about a few things ex ante um, that might be driving a negative effect 
Um, one is that you know perceptions of the likelihood of winning might be affected by winning, um, and indeed, and we had some uh, we have some survey experimental evidence that people who are informed about the lottery. Um, think that there a substantial proportion of them think that their chances of winning the lottery um, in, a, in a second round where they win the lottery would be lower. So about 42% of our respondents say, yeah, if you win once, your chances are lower. Um, you know, the vast majority, the, the, almost all of the rest of them say the chances are the same. A few say um, it's, it's, it's greater. So this is not true. Um, the probability is the same, but we know that people perceive um, uh, probabilities in, in, in creative ways, um, and so um, that there could be driving um, an effect. However, note that that implies a strong positive incentive effect of the lottery itself. So the argument would be, you know, I really want to pay taxes because I think the lottery is going to give me some benefit. Um, but my chance of having won the lottery once, my chances of winning it again are less, and so my future compliance diminishes. Um, what I'll show is some evidence in a second that the lottery probably isn't having that kind of positive incentive effect. Um, and so we don't think that this, um, this explanation helps, helps um, clear up why there's a negative effect on compliance. Could be. They're told it's a year um, in the letter um, from the time they go down to, to City Hall. Um, I don't know. It's a good question. And, and one of the things we're actually kind of doing as a follow-up to this is in a series of interventions where we uh, inform people who have won the lottery at random about the impending do, uh, resumption of their you know, uh, obligations to see if that has some, some, uh, some, some effect on ameliorating um, this, this negative effect. But I don't, I don't know. You know, it, 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 it could be um, that people, uh, you know, forget. Um, but, you know, the municipality reminds them, especially when they've forgotten. You know, they continue to get the tax bill throughout the period of the exoneration. It's just zeroed out at a zero balance. So, you know, the bill comes to their house. Um, and so, you know, unless they've uh, gotten out of the habit of looking at their tax bill, um, uh, I don't think that they explain it, you know, an explanation may be less possible, but you know, can sort of be interesting to sort of get your feedback on sort of what's habit and what's not. Um, but I think you know, falling out of the habit of looking at your tax bill is part of the, you know, part of the habitual response. We're kind of kind of interested in here in, in explaining this this negative effect. Okay, so another possibility is income effects. You know, people start to spend their windfall on other things and that's sticky and it's hard for them to shift their, you know, economists suggest this to us. Um, uh, it's possible. That would imply some heterogeneity in effects probably by property value. Um, and we don't find that in the natural experiment or in the in the field experiment. I won't I won't I won't belabor the point too much, but I can talk about it more. I think probably the the you know the biggest most important alternative is that people infer something about the state um, and its tax capacities from the fact that it's Holding a lottery, you know. So, so when you win the lottery, um, it's not just that you have to that you f get to forego your obligations for a year. It's also that you uh, learn something. You learn about the existence of the lottery, and you might infer something about the state from from that informational prop. So, what we want to do is to use field and also survey experiments to try to separate the impact of information 
um, from the impact of the disruption of the habit um, itself. So we mailed um, flyers that we designed together with the municipality to households, tax bank households, um, uh, in which we, first of all, had just a placebo control. We had a pure control that received no uh, flyers, then a placebo control in which we simply told people that their payment is due. Um, remind you that the second payment of the property tax is due in July. If you've not received your bill, you can obtain a duplicate at our website, mail these to households in June, shortly before the due date of the, the taxes. Um, we're going to compare to that placebo control group um, conditions in which we tell people about the lottery. So those are sort of positive incentives for paying taxes, or we remind them about sanctions for non-payment. And so we actually had two versions of this. I'm going to kind of pool them together um, for ease of presentation, but the results are similar either way. Um, uh, one in which we remind people of this sort of individual payoff from the lottery, say the city of government, the city government of Montevideo wants to reward good taxpayers. If you pay on time, you will participate automatically in a lottery for the exoneration of one year. A property tax lotteries take place every even month of the year together with the national lottery. The beneficiaries will be duly informed and the results will be published on the website of the city government. You could be the next one. Um, we also have a social condition that kind of primes the social rationale for the existence um, of, of the lottery. Um, and then we have conditions in which we prime either the individual uh, punish possibility of individual punishment and or the social rationale for, for punishing bad taxpayers. We say those who don't pay on time, this is all in addition to the reminder, by the way. So we have the reminder tax plus this additional tax. Those who don't pay on time may be subject to fines or charges. The Montevideo city government may take administrative and legal actions to enforce the law in the corresponding cases. Pay on time, avoid um, fines and charges. Okay, so pooling the individual and the social conditions, we have um, a sample of both eligible taxpayers at the time we conducted this, this field experiment um, in, uh, 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 and then we have a sample of ineligibles. Um, and so one of the things about the field experiment, by the way, that's interesting from sort of the policy perspective is that you think the program, and this is the theory that our interviewees um, sort of had about how this induces compliance, is that it's not just effective for good taxpayers. In fact, really it induces compliance by causing bad taxpayers to bring their accounts up to date in order to gain eligibility for the program. So here we're going to be able to look at both the eligible and the ineligible um, taxpayers. And one thing that's kind of interesting is that they're spread throughout the city of Montevideo. Um, uh, my, the, the, these areas down here are kind of the richer, richer areas of Montevideo, and so your in, one's intuition might be that's where the, you know, that's where the good taxpayers are, and the bad taxpayers are in outlying, um, poorer areas, and that's absolutely not not the case. Um, you can find good and bad taxpayers everywhere. Um, uh, bad taxpaying knows no class. Um, and so, um, and so that's kind of kind of interesting. Um, but we also have balance on the you know the, the uh, various covariates, including geography, by assignment um, to treatment and control. That's not what that shows there. Okay, so what we mainly want to do is compare the messages about the lottery and about punishments to the placebo reminder. Um, but this is just this is a comparison of the pure control group. And we use two measures of compliance. One is sort of intended compliance. Did you access your web account? Um, and so we have, a, we have a measure of that from the municipal government for these taxpayers. And we also have a measure of whether they paid their tax bill on time um, in, in July. Um, and so 
what one can see is that there's some movement from receiving the flyer, um, and in particular, there's an effect, parent effect for both good and bad taxpayers in many of the conditions on intended compliance. So relative to the control group, they tended to look at their accounts more. Um, uh, for bad, for good taxpayers, there's no effect on paying the bill on time, perhaps some effect um, for, for bad taxpayers. But the interesting th thing to note is that this is all relative to the control group. Um, and, and underscores the rationale for including the reminder group. Um, in fact, if you check out the reminder group on the left, um, uh, the uh, effects seem bigger uh, for the reminder relative to the peer control than any of the than any, any of the informational conditions. And in fact, now if we compare rewards and punishments pooling again um, to the placebo control group rather than the peer control group, we find null um, or even one apparent negative effect. Um, on the left. Now, um, this negative effect is plausibly consistent with the kind of signaling story um, that I was mentioning that maybe, you know, you infer something about the state from the fact of the uh, being told about the existence of the lottery and that makes you less, you know, willing to pay taxes because um, you, you, maybe you infer something about the compliance behavior of others. You're not going to be the sucker who pays taxes when no, people are complying at such low rates that the city government has to have this elaborate lottery to reward good taxpayers. Um, but uh, the other evidence kind of militates against that, a, a really strong interpretation like that. For one thing, we don't see any effect on actual payment um, in the next period. Um, and we're looking now at subsequent, we have data on the next tax periods, we're looking at, at, at that to see if there's any evidence of effect over the longer term. But I'm also going to present evidence from our survey experiment that, it's that suggests that's not the kind of interpretation that people have um, of, the, of the existence of the lottery. Um, so what we think overall the, the evidence suggests is that um, people are complying at lower rates simply because their habit has been disrupted, but not because of some informational effect uh, of the, uh, the existence of the, knowing about the existence of the lottery and their behavior. I should mention we had a plan to analyze the effect of receiving the flyers on both actual payment data using administ tax administrative records, that's what this is, and survey, household surveys. A household survey, unfortunately, isn't a very effective vehicle for looking at that. Um, it was a logistically complicated endeavor. This is me being kind to the survey firm, um, which, which involved going to specific households, locating specific taxpayers, um, and it was incredibly slow. Um, and so after it was supposed to take place in two weeks, after three months, we called off, um, we called off the survey. We do have survey data we have observational data from survey data, and we have survey experiments embedded in that that we'll use to look at some of the um, attitudinal outcomes we're interested in. But we can't look very readily at the effect of the flyers on, on attitudes themselves. Yeah? You don't have any way of evaluating kind of manipulation checks, right? I mean, just saying the placebo control versus various traits. Placebo control was so much more concise versus the other ones where it's more likely Yeah, so we, um, actually that's sort of the interpretation that we kind of, uh, can, you know, are sympathetic to, that, you know, the reminder text is pithy, there's a lot of additional stuff that, that maybe drives down compliance. It's a little bit hard to know. Um, we do have survey evidence and we ask people if they remembered getting a flyer. 
but you know, in many cases, the survey took place so long after the flyer, and you know, this this is designed to look like the tax bill. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't informative. We didn't see a lot of differences, um, but we think that the fact that it does impact com intended compliance in the web suggests there's um, there there was um, there was receipt of the flyers. Um, you know, we thought ex ante that this was going to be a quite a powerful um, you know treatment for people because it shows up in the mailbox looking just like the tax bill from the city government. We designed it with the city government. Um, with that in mind, they're interested in running informational campaigns. They, ha they do print messages on tax bills, and so they thought this is a good way to test out whether these messages are read and responded to. So, you know, it's exposed, it's possible, yeah, it just showed up with every other piece of mail and people didn't look at it. Um, but this is the main medium through which people actually get their tax bills. So, you know, our a priori conjecture was it would, it would matter. Um, people would read it, yeah. We, ha we haven't. Um, heterogeneous effects by, it's a, it's a little complicated to do it by property value. Property value implies richer taxpayers, but also a bigger tax burden. What we have done is look at past compliance history. So I have something in the appendix I could show, but I'll just tell you the results, which is um, we looked at people who were good taxpayers at the time of our intervention, but had been bad taxpayers in the past, and also people who were bad taxpayers at the time of our intervention, but were mainly good taxpayers in the past. We had some operationalization of that. Um, and then continuing the normative train, we call this the first category we call at risk, and the second we call salvageable. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, seeing like a state. Um, but. But uh, but we didn't find heterogeneous effects, so we didn't we didn't in the main find any difference. We found the effects for those groups where we found them here, but we didn't find um, heterogeneous effects. Um, and so I think also that's consistent. You know, it's evidence against an income effect story, and it's evidence against maybe the informational story not to find the heterogeneous effects. Um, in any case, I would also point out you know there are a number of studies in Latin America that have found negative effects on compliance of the threatening. Um, messages. Um, we, if absent the placebo control group, we would also think we were seeing that. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important to compare to a reminder not to not to appear control. Okay, so we also had a survey experiment, as I mentioned, where we um, informed people about the text. We, we um, first of all replicated the text of the flyers, um, and then we also had a condition where, uh, in 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 one condition, we told people about the lottery that. Um, taxpayers were selected at random for uh, for this benefit um, of, a, of exoneration of taxes for a year. In the, in the other condition, people were told from time to time the city government of Montevideo selects people and offers them a year um, tax holiday. So we're interested in whether the lottery itself influences attitudes towards the equity and fairness of the of the tax system. And for the five outcomes we had, we didn't find. Um, effects for whether the municipal government does a good job, whether the municipal taxes are just, whether rewards are a waste of money. We do, however, seem to find effects for these, second, these last two outcomes. One, whether people say rewards go to the same people as always. And so the lottery drives down agreement with that statement quite substantially. You know, so people may, may see this as a kind of transparent, equitable way of allocating the benefit. Um, and they say it's worth it to be up to date. Um, so, um, you know, <clears throat> that effect is a little bit smaller. Um, it suggests that people view 
the lottery positively, that it doesn't have this kind of negative signaling effect we thought. It does suggest there could be some positive incentive effect. Um, you know, I was saying for the perceptions of the lottery, perceptions of probability of winning argument probably um, wouldn't hold because there's not a strong, uh, strong incentive effect. There's some evidence of that in the survey experiment. You know, we don't find any evidence on behavior, so there's no. Um, there's, there's no evidence that people are positively induced to, to pay. People who haven't won the lottery in the past you know, aren't positively induced to pay um, by being told about the lottery in the field experiment. Okay, so that, that's sort of uh, the, the main evidence. Um, you know, these are from policy perspective, and I'm at a policy school, so I can say you know, these are, these are um, innovations that are widespread across Latin America now um, and you know uh, and uh, and they may or may not have positive effects elsewhere one of the things though our our results suggest is that policymakers ignore the disruption of, of habit at, at their peril um, and I think social scientists um, you know do too that a habit is not a kind of feature of behavior that's been explored empirically in lots of important realms of citizen state interaction. Um, now, from a policy perspective, there are lots of programs that don't have tax holidays, and they might not be—they uh, might not have these kinds of negative effects that Montevideo um, does. I think our findings suggest that that habit can indeed influence participation, and and we think could contribute along with other factors to to virtuous or vicious compliance cycles. So, as I mentioned, we're doing some more um, work with the municipality um, help us unpack not only the habit mechanism a little more, but also ask, you know, if this isn't an effective way of boosting compliance, what alternative intervention might, um, might work better? Um, and so interested in your impressions about that and, and ideas. Thanks. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. So All we right. have sort of some time for questions. And so everybody, if anybody is interested in starting, me? Yeah. Oh, so is the policy prescription here just sign up people for the automated payments? Yeah. Probably. That's, probably. That's basically the probably. But you know, the incentive effect seems pretty modest. Um, you know, from uh, you know, so so maybe the policy prescription is don't have lotteries. I don't know. You know, maybe they have don't have rewards for good taxpayers. I mean, they have you know some. It does seem to have generate some, you know, changes in perceptions of the state, and that that could be good. And you know, but if this is your solution to the big problem of tax compliance, um, you better look elsewhere. Um, These lotteries, just as an empirical question that I may have missed, um, the, the, this this lottery isn't happening. It's not like they did the lottery in 2013. It's like every year they do. They do it every year uh, since 2004. Oh. One of the odd things about this policy is that it's not been advertised well by the city government, which gave us some scope for doing these inform informational interventions. So only about 8% of households in our study, in our survey, knew about the existence of the lottery before we told them about it. Um, and so, you know, this, this is not a policy that, even though it's existed for a long time, is, is all that kind of well known, which surprised me. Um, we had indications of that before we did the survey, which is why we, we kind of designed the intervention the way that we did. But um, it surprised me when I learned that that was the anecdotal impression, and it's surprising to have it confirmed in the, in the, in the data. But anyway, they've gone on since 2004, you know, bi-monthly bi lotteries. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so I have a quick question like in, in relation to the automatic payments. So who are, do you know who are the people who sort of who are paying this way? Is it sort of who, do you have any references sort of people who have credit cards and who actually can pay every month? They don't worry that they won't be able to pay or, or that they have enough money in their bank accounts or formal workers that receive payments through the bank accounts. Is there anything yeah. that... Um, so, because the, the person who doesn't show, who's not complying regularly, maybe someone who's deciding what to spend every month on. So, maybe someone with a less stable income, or even if it's the same income level, but you would think somebody who has a business but is not an employee would be less likely to pay frequently. Or somebody who's a pensioner, I mean, may want to do automated payments because may have difficulty in going to pay, and so that person pays all the time. So it's not really habit, but it's like something that is related to sort of some stability in choices rather than, it's not the habit, but that I know what I'm going to do. And somebody else may say, I don't know what things are going to look like later. So it's not habit, but levels of uncertainty, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, people who pay automatically differ in other dimensions than people who don't. That might drive difference in effects. It's certainly plausible, and it's not something we can rule out definitively. Um, you know, I don't know much about who are the people who pay automatically, although your question suggests we should do some data analysis, you know, sort of we have property values and see if it's the richer folks that are paying automatically and so forth. Um, so we will do that. Um, but, but I don't know too much more about them than that. Um, oh, sorry. I have the intuition that maybe people who are sort of wealthy may have sort of that, I mean, instability, I mean, or difficulty in paying and, I don't know, I can have a family anecdote of somebody who had trouble paying but got automatic payments and it's not a question of income but it's a question of actually going and sometimes the sort of the process of paying is not easy. Mm -hmm. You have to go to a certain bank, and if you're too old, then that could be a problem or something like that. So retirees are taken out of this, actually, um, because retirees pay this is something, one of the many, many details we learned about this program as we go on. If you want to do a uh, an evaluation like this, you will learn lots of details about policies that you never thought. And, and one of the things that is that um, retirees pay all at once, at, and so they're taken out of the... Um, they're, they're taken out of the field experiment. We didn't use them for the natural experiment, so that we have an indicator for that. But, but it's still, your point is really well taken that there can be other features of, um, you know, attributes of taxpayers that make it easier for them to pay um, ex, ex post. Um, uh, you know, still we would expect those things to affect the, um, yeah, so, so anyway, that, that point is well taken. I'll think about it a little more. Brian? Thanks a lot, Thad. Um, so I thought. So at the end, if I understood right, it, it, very, very few people know about this lottery, uh, which is interesting in the light of, of the survey experiment we do, where a lot of people say, if they know, once you tell them there, there's a lottery, then they say, oh, this is a good reason to get up to date on my on my tax paying. So it sounds like. So I'm curious about your speculation. If this was really well advertised, would a lot of people then say? Oh heck, it's worth doing. And so, and, and in that case, you would find a lot of the effect on the bad taxpayers who now say, "Oh, I'm going to get up to date." Now, the as you say, the rationalist sort of logic doesn't make it worth it. You have a one in five thousand chance of winning, but um, but I guess we know. I mean, people buy lottery tickets anyway, right? So we know people generally overestimate their chances of winning lotteries. Um, so I so so I guess the the there are two different 
ways that this can improve compliance, right? One, by keeping compliers complying, or two, by incentivizing non-compliers to comply. And, 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 and speculatively, maybe, if that number instead of 8% was a lot higher, that, that more of the non-compliers would, would sign up? I'm curious about your... I mean, that was our a priori conjecture. Uh, the evidence is not consistent with our a priori conjecture. You know, we thought that we thought that that would be the big effect. And one of the reasons we're really, you know, as we got into this question about the impact of the the programs on, uh, the program on tax compliance, we thought it was so important to do the informational intervention was not just for the purposes we're for which we're using it here, which is to unbundle the disruption from the informational effect, but really because we thought that you know you can't evaluate the effect of the program by just looking at what it does to good already good taxpayers, already eligible taxpayers. You have to look at the effect on 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 ineligible taxpayers. But we didn't find that it does induce compliance, so I'm not sure I see the argument for why taking it to scale um, would would necessarily have any any other impact. Uh, maybe there's something I haven't thought about there. Um, but but interesting points. The the other the other sort of minor question I had about how how this actually works is it. So I'm thinking if I have a tax holiday maybe and I don't send in my tax thing maybe and this is a you know this is just sort of a probably a rare occurrence but maybe I moved maybe I moved and if I had paid my taxes I I would have then when I paid my taxes notified the government send my tax bill to my new address um, but because I didn't pay my taxes now. You know, I didn't get a chance to notify notify them about my new address, and so then the so then the tax bill doesn't come to my just doesn't come to my house after the after the lottery. I'm wondering if that if 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 there's any way to I guess you could get that by comparing people who are online payers versus versus people who who get the bill. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you got to think it affects the winners differently from the losers. You know, that getting a tax holiday induces people to move. Um, their houses, which could be possible, you know, it'd be a big, it'd be, it'd be kind of a big effect. Um, they do, though, continue to receive bills during, as I mentioned, during the during the exoneration. So, um, you know, their incentives to notify the municipality could conceivably be be less. Um, it's a good point. Um, so, thank you. Um, so. Just thinking about the, because the, if the policy prescription is don't have a tax holiday, you know, I sort of go back to sort of why do the, why do governments, why do so many governments do it? And so I, I just sort of, um, I don't know if I missed this in your presentation, but I was wondering sort of what percentage of, of taxpayers are even, um, are, are included in this lottery to begin with, sort of. So like how many of them get it? Is it like 0.5% of of all taxpayers, or is it something more substantial? Because you could, you might think that even if in the end that that like tiny percent, I don't know what the percentage is. I might have missed that. But if it's a tiny, let's say it's a tiny percentage, um, you know, is this something where government sort of tax authorities, which are not always well liked, this is something this is something that's going to make us look nicer, you know, in front of the citizenry. So maybe it's worth the sort of loss in revenue if there is a loss in revenue. So sort of like, do you have a sense of if just sort of generating goodwill or, or other types of motivations are, are driving this if it's not exactly increasing compliance? Yeah, those are good questions. I mean, I, I would hedge a little bit my previous answer to Tarek, which is to say I do want to be careful to say, look, and we said this to the city government that this is losing you money, but uh, there might be other reasons that you want to do this. And our survey experiment evidence kind of consistent with that. People think policy has some, some you know, there may be good effects in terms of 
perceptions of the transparency of the system. So there might be other reasons to do this. And in fact, you know, the reason these came into being was to induce compliance, but particularly in the wake of the economic crisis in 2002-2003 in Uruguay, where there, were, there was an, a, an amnesty certain bad taxpayers, and those amnesties have been repeated over time. Um, and Alicia and I were talking about amnesties in Peru before this. I mean, this is pretty widespread practice of governments to, to issue amnesties. And so the thing is, the concern is, um, f is to find some way to recognize good taxpayers at the same time that you're, you know, you're pr creating a benefit for, for delinquent or for bad taxpayers. Um, and so um, you know, there's that aspect of it too, public relations aspect um, of, it, of it as well. Um, uh, so, you know, I want to be a, a little bit, a little bit careful um, in in that respect. Thanks for that. Um, so, I wanted to just ask you a little bit about different lottery designs, given that if we do believe that lotteries, perhaps in themselves, have these effects on improving transparency. You know, you have seen a fair amount of variation in the institutional rules around lotteries. I don't know them particularly well, but for example, when I think of Portugal's lottery, my understanding was that it was really meant to form a habit among small business owners, which is basically, you know, every receipt got entered into the lottery, and so then the customer always had an incentive to ask for the receipt from small businesses. And so there you're actually thinking that you're promoting habits at the same time that you're entering a lottery, which is, you know, the small business, giving receipts, the customer now has an incentive to demand the receipts if they think of it as a lottery ticket. So I'm just wondering, have you talked at all with the city government or thought about different lottery designs um, that maybe have a little bit more of the structure of habit formation? Mm -hmm. um, my other question just has to do with sort of how we think about the effects on people with sort of long established habits or whether in your data you can, I can I was going to ask you about retirees and elderly people, but you imagine if you've been paying taxes for 50 plus years, the effects of winning a lottery might be different than, you know, your 18 year old. So in the same ways that in voting studies, we often think of cohort effects. Um, do you see or are you able to analyze any type of cohort effects or, you know, sort of differences in habit interruption across different age groups? Um, great. I mean, on the first, thank you. On the first question, you know, um, there are a lot of the lotteries that exist have this character, it seems, of, uh, of almost turning uh, customers into monitors. Um, and, and so there, especially with, this, with the VAT tax in a lot of places in, in Latin America, you know, you ask for the receipt as a way to essentially monitor um, small business uh, owner behavior. Um, uh, and so we've seen, you know, different lottery designs for prize lotteries um, in Latin America, and a lot of them raffle in-kind benefits. And so, you know, houses, cars. So I guess another policy recommendation is maybe you should raffle a house or a car, um, you know, instead of a tax holiday. And that's one of the things we've, we talked, we suggested to the city government too. Um, you know, hesitate to really offer, you know, I'm ultra cautious. I'm not usually in the business of offering policy advice and I'm ultra cautious about it because, you know, we don't know that those lotteries that, um, you know, even if compliance went from 68% to 85%, we don't know that they're really having, you know, having an effect, a positive effect on compliance. So um, maybe, you know, maybe that would be uh, a, a way to, 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 to induce more, more compliance. But it's interesting suggesting would there be lotteries that would foster the habit. Um, and so I'll think more about that. Um, we, it's hard to, our empirical traction for kind of 
heterogeneous effects is limited. So even though I'm very sympathetic to the idea that one should do that, it's it's hard in our in our particular study because we have, you know, six thousand taxpayers who have, you know. Uh, won or lost the lottery over the course of 14 years, and so our, once we start to slice and dice, things get small. The other complication is that we're doing the analysis by taxpayer account, um, and it's a little hard, it's sometimes hard to track taxpayer account to, so we know where the taxpayer account, where the bills are sent, and that's where we, and, and, and we know the characteristics of the taxpayer account, but, you know, we don't, it's, it's a little bit harder to identify the attributes of the individuals who might be responsible for paying the tax. And, you know, it could be the old, older person in the house, could be the younger person in the house. And so that's, a, that's kind of a limitation, the difficulty of the, the data. Um, so, we'll, but, I, but I think there's more we can do for sure, so I'll think more about that. We don't see it in Uruguay, which is the place you'd think. I mean, and it's not like there's a ceiling effect, as you saw from our, for our second slide. Um, compliance has been pretty steady, um, and there's, there's growing accumulated debt, but that's because of a pretty steady payment rate. Um, uh, and so, you know, certainly there are dips. You know, when the crisis comes, um, compliance goes down, and that, that happened in Argentina. It's happened in, in Uruguay. Um, but I'm not sure one can say, you know, I don't have the data to say if there's a secular trend across Latin America, but, but uh, in Uruguay we don't, we don't see it, I guess is what all I can really say. Thank you. Um, this was like really interesting. So um, while you were presenting, I had like this idea, oh look, like the information like uh, effect in the sense that, oh, this is maybe because, you know, when you win the lottery then you think, well, I'm less likely to win again, so I will stop paying and I, I mean you said like you were able to you know like uh, kind of separate this effect from the habit effect and you think it's habit and not this information but it wasn't like really clear to me how you discard like this well I'm doing this because I think like I don't have like uh, like a possibility of winning again so I, I was wondering how you get at the at, you know at the conclusion that that's not what's happening because I wasn't part of your survey or like um, so in relation to this and what Alicia was saying, I was thinking, well, maybe if you look up for a genius effect between like people that were like bad payers, then good payers, then bad payers, then good payers, and maybe they were like bad payers till they knew like this was happening and say like, well, I will enter the lottery, and then once they won, they were like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go back to be a bad payer again, versus people that always was a good payer. So maybe there is like a different effect there between these two groups. Um, so maybe you were a good payer at the time of the lottery, but that was the only time when you were a good payer versus you always were a good payer. Mm -hmm. And I think that also kind of relates to what Candelaria was saying. Um, so I was thinking like, yeah, you know, people that enroll in these like automatic payments are really different from people that don't, but not only in the sense that they have like different incomes and stuff, they are like different type of people. They are like the super good payers. They are so good that they want to do it like automatically in case they forget or something like that, right? And and they are like, m I don't know, maybe more organized people, people that likes to do everything right. <laughs> so I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, that's yeah. just a thought. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it weren't automatic, it wouldn't yeah. happen. <laughs> 
it's like gardening for me. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, um, those are great suggestions, and I mean, I'll, I'll um, we'll, we'll think it gives us some things to, to work on. Um, you know, uh, the evidence that we point to to discard the kind of positive incentive effect is the behavioral evidence, because we do have some effect in that when we tell people about the lottery that they say it's more worthwhile to be up on their up to date on their taxes. But when we mail something to people saying, you know, if you pay your taxes, you'll be eligible for the for the benefits of the lottery. There's no effect on actual behavior. So we think the positive, you know, the, the effect, the positive effect could be there in principle. It's pretty limited. Um, and so the idea that that would drive a, a big sustained negative effect on future compliance seems less plausible to us. But there's definitely more we can do um, in terms of looking at heterogeneous effects. What we have done, we've looked at, the, as I mentioned, this analysis. We've done this analysis looking at at risk and salvageable taxpayers for our field experiment, but still pending is that analysis for our, our natural experiment um, where we found the negative effects. So we will we'll definitely do that and, and think more about this critique that uh, people who pay automatically are, are different in lots of ways. You know, it's gonna it's one of those things where you gotta look at the weight of the evidence, I think. You know, there's a lot of little clues. Um, none of these tests are gonna be dispositive. So um, I was thinking about why people pay taxes here in the US. And part of it is kind of this fear of the IRS. Another part of it is kind of this social taboo about not paying your taxes. So I was wondering what could maybe be going on here is kind of a changing norms story that you win this lottery and suddenly this kind of taboo is broken. Oh, maybe you know, it's normalized to not pay your taxes. So that same kind of threat mm -hmm. of sanction from the tax collecting authority uh, doesn't hold with the same force. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great suggestion. Um, it's 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 uh, it's plausible. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I don't know more broadly why people pay their taxes, and part of our aim was try to find out, find find out why, um, to the extent we could. Um, but you know, there are probably lots of reasons, and probably. Um, social pressure is part of it, and you know there's some evidence on that actually from tax compliance studies that you know sort of social pressure treatments telling people uh, your neighbors whether you paid taxes have an effect. There's some interesting work in Pakistan that finds that. So so uh, you know there are lots of reasons why people might pay. But yeah, the the alternative you offer that um, sort of the taboo is broken, I think is um, is sort of is sort of there. You know, the only thing I would say is it doesn't explain why you would eventually get co convergence. You know, why people would, would, you know, once the taboo is broken, heck, if I, you know, and it might be for heterogeneous, it might be for only for some set that t the taboo is broken. You know, but presumably once it's broken, it's broken. Um, or at least you've got to think of some alternative account whereby after two years the effect goes away. So, so that's the thing. That's the only thing I would say in, in response is that there is this, you know, it's more consistent with like an interruption where there's a knock-on effect, and it's not just the first period, but it's the second period and the third period where you're not paying, you know. But eventually, that one-time disruption in your payment kind of recedes in importance, um, and so that's why I was developing the kind of formalization um, where we look at the stock um, of compliance habit at a particular time as the sort of sum, the discounted sum of all past compliance behaviors. So shocks yesterday are more important than shocks three periods ago. Three periods ago still matter, but, and there, but there's a decay in the effect over time. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, we had thought about that. It's some additional work, quite a bit of additional work to do that analysis. We could do it. Um, we have to work with our partners to get the right data. Um, it, the interest 
We, we sort of discarded it in our initial study design, and then our interest in doing it declined further when we had these null effects in the field experiment, where we thought about doing it in the field experiment, because, you know, if there's a null effect, null direct effect, we didn't think the evidence, you know, the, that the idea of strong spillover effects is that possible. But it occurs to me, as you say this, I mean, that'd be an interesting thing to look at in the natural experiment as a way to discard some, some other alternatives. Um, you know, did, was there a negative effect on compliance for people who, you know, knew or lived near, or maybe family members of, of people who won the, the lottery um, compared to a control group? And that's um, a little tricky to design and get the right data for, but we could conceivably do it, so we'll think about that more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, um, it's habit in a, in a maybe I don't know if it's habit in a big H sense or <laughs> what that you know, but it's it's like shifting your fundamental kind of behavioral profile as opposed to just you know you pay each of these taxes in a different way. So the small H habit is you know you paid your property tax, you didn't have to pay it for a year, and you sort of got out of the habit of paying that property tax, and there's not spillover. We thought about looking at contagion effects across taxes. That those data are actually even a little trickier to get, but we can. We can work on that um, because simply because the way we're starting to get the data is to ask um, uh, for everybody who paid um, the property tax and sort out the sorry everyone who paid the vehicle tax and sort out those who didn't pay the prop also pay the property tax. So our motive in doing that was just was to get more comparability across the taxes. That you know there could be lots of reasons you see a negative effect for vehicle for for property but not for vehicle because people who pay property tax are different than people who say only pay a vehicle tax. Um, uh, but, and so a, a more, a little slightly more controlled comparison is of the effects across people who pay both types of taxes, limiting it to people who pay both types of taxes. But could think about that contagion effect idea, and we have a little bit in the past, so that's a good, good suggestion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are, those are good, those are good suggestions. Um, I mean, uh, we wanted to we wanted to try to manipulate, you know, perceptions of the probability of punishment. In fact, that's the motive for our design was to compare the positive and negative incentives in some way, and to and to look at whether sanctions or rewards are more effective. All the problems and the comparisons um, they're not exactly symmetric in our field experiment, but that was kind of our, our motive. Um, you know. We don't really see, in this period, in this context, we didn't see changes in the punishment regimes, the punishment that was available to governments were there throughout the period. What we did see was frequent amnesties, general amnesties. Um, and so, you know, from the point of view of the individual taxpayer, when that happens, is kind of unpredictable what it means. It doesn't mean you're, you, all of your debt is forgiven, but you can come in and get a payment plan with a discount. And, um, and so, you know, um, it might be that just waiting for the amnesty is sort of the thing to do. Um, and so we tried to look at that a little bit. We have some survey evidence on that that um, we're still kind of analyzing. Um, and so I don't have a ton to say about it now. Um, but I, but uh, on the last point you made, I mean, uh, about risk acceptance on the part of the, yeah, yeah, it could be. I mean, you know, the probability of punishment is, um, you know, in the, you can have a fine assessed. But it's not like a risk, you know, what's interesting about this context is it's not like you're hiding income and there's some risk that the state is going to find out. Um, if you don't pay, the state knows, you know, um, with certainty, because um, the state knows what you owe. 
And so the state could take your house, but the state nobody never takes anybody's house. The biggest, the biggest punishment is there's restrictions on sale. So those are, uh, those are operationalized through public notaries. Like if you try to sell your house and there are debts on it, city government, you can't sell your house. So that is a cost. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's not, it's not really the risk. I mean, the risk story has to involve some probability that the state will find out and the state finds out with certainty. So, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm less inclined to think that's, that's at the root of the negative effect, but it's, you know, I think, think more about it. Good suggestion. Yeah. So you started with a quote from, uh, I guess I'm saying what, that, uh, these kinds of things increase compliance. I guess I was just wondering, so what do these folks in uh, Montevideo say? Like, before you started this, did they say, hey, we've got this great lottery program and it really works? Because if they did, they're real boneheads, because it should be clear. Like, did they not know? Like, what did they say? I think we so rarely know the consequences of what we do that I'm not, I, I mean, being a bonehead, I mean, that's, that's, that's like a pretty expansive set. Um, so they, when you, a priori, they thought, I don't think they necessarily would have said, you know, compliance is soared because of our program, but they saw it as an effective thing to do to increase compliance. Why? Well, did because it, somewhere else? like, how did this idea <clears throat> get implanted? I mean, I, you know, that's a good... Because it seems so terrible. Well, ex post, we didn't think it was terrible when we started. We thought it, we thought it probably had positive effects. Yeah, but you're from the outside, <clears throat> right? So you don't have access to... The, but, you know, we know that so-and-so was supposed to pay their taxes, and now they don't. They used to pay their taxes, and after they won the law, they don't pay them. Like, that, that's not hard for them to do that. Well, I mean, sorry, my phone is ringing, um, which is being... Uh, telegraphed here by my microphone. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I think, you know, I don't know really. Expo you know, I think ex post you think, yeah, if you give a good student a year off doing homework, they're kind of a worse student when they come back at the end of the year. But that's like, that's sort of obvious to me in light of our findings. It wasn't obvious to me ex ante, and I don't think it was obvious to them. I mean, they thought, okay, we have, a, we have a crisis. We've given amnesties to bad taxpayers. We need to find a way to balance that with a rewards program for good taxpayers. It's, it's a recognition, it's a public relations thing, but it's also going to induce more compliance mm -hmm. among good taxpayers or counteract. Among bad taxpayers. And among bad taxpayers. Right. Yeah. In other words, the target is to get bad taxpayers to become good taxpayers so they qualify for the lottery, right? Well, I think it's both. It's also, you know, you know, you don't want good taxpayers to fall off the cliff once there's an amnesty and they say, why am I bothering to pay taxes as a sucker? Because, it, you know, people who didn't pay their taxes are being forgiven. So I think it's both. Um, you know, I think they just weren't thinking about the program design in this, in this way. They weren't thinking that the holiday would have an effect. It was, they thought about it as a, as a reward, not an interruption. Yeah, I, but I don't know. I'm speculating here. Okay. I wasn't in their heads. The context in which I work, like in Egypt, I mean, we would assume that if we're going to give people a year off from taxes, oh my God, good luck trying to get them started. <laughs> I mean, now that you say this, I'm very, I, I find it very compelling. Um, you know, I, but I, you know, but, but, but that's not how I thought I'm about it. I'm surprised they didn't think that there. 
given that you know they they're dealing with all these problems of state weakness, all these problems of course. And here's our, our solution is that this thing that we find really hard to get people to do, we're going to stop asking them to do it for a year. I will report back to them. <laughs> I, I mean, but uh, I, I, I have, yeah. But in relation to that, actually, you have people who always pay, people who are unstable, and people who never pay. So in the context of the crisis, paying is hard for everybody. Mm -hmm. And you just, as a politician, you also want to show you know, the people who are paying that their payment is recognized and rewarded. So it seems to me that that's a very important point. And, and thinking about the 2000s, yeah, at the end, you know, throughout the decade, then countries had more money. But at the beginning of, the, of this period, especially in Uruguay, there had been a crisis. So you yeah. also want to recognize the effort that people made. And politically, you want to, you know, get that support. I mean, it seems to me that, that I mean, it's a good, you know, people who got the amnesty, after all, were also being given a tax holiday. Right. Um, or at least, you know, some, some, they were given some, some breaks and recompense. Right. So, yeah. That could be some fairness. Good way to phrase it. It's, it's fairness, but if you're, if you're giving that behavioral, you know, incentive to bad taxpayers, um, you know, but why not extend that as a reward to good, mm -hmm. good taxpayers, too? Um, Yeah. Um, so that the habit continues to be formed. Is are there any places that do that, and that, cause that might be a nice comparison? Like yeah. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of those examples. I mean, as we've learned more about the policies around Latin America, it seems the holiday is more the exception than the rule. So, you know, for policy purposes, maybe you know this lesson is important, but for Montevideo, but not not as general. I think that you know the insight it might give us into how habit affects participation is 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 the useful um, direction, and that's sort of you know that's obviously why we're. Um, framing our project that way, but also I think that is the kind of the value of it. Um, but you know, these other pro these other programs haven't been evaluated. Like you know, it's it's nice to think yes, well, that's the solution is to raffle houses and cars, but <laughs> we don't know that that actually works either. So we've that's one thing we've told the uh, policy implication. We said maybe you want to maybe I mentioned this already, but maybe you want to raffle houses or cars instead, and um, and that might be something that there'd be scope for for actually evaluating in multi-video. A, sh a shift. The problem is this policy, you know, the, the empirical, sorry to go back to sort of, you know, um, prosaic empirical things, but, uh, you know, the, 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 our scope for evaluating interventions that change the form of the, um, the, the, the benefit is kind of limited because these effects happen over a long period of time. It's a small study group at each lottery, so we have 14 years of data. Um, so I don't know if we're going to be able to sort of alter the intervention and see what happens. Um, but, but I think, you know, there, one, should, one should study. Um, and you, one could replicate a study like ours in a place like Brazil has a lot of these prize lotteries. So one could assess the impact of those lotteries using a strategy like this. Um, you know, you couldn't then conclude that because there's a positive effect in Brazil and a negative effect in Montevideo, it's necessarily because of the form of the lottery, but that would be useful evidence, mm -hmm. if not dispositive. 
Are you okay with him? Mm? <laughs> Are you fine? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's great. Well, no, this is great. It's testament to how interesting it is. So I just had a quick to question about how... To be in a room of people how... who care about tax compliance as much as I do at this point. <laughs> so I know. <laughs> Sorry, I knew that was pushing um, it. I'm, I'm not sure if you mentioned this um, in the talk, but um, was this... Um, so, I, so you mentioned that this policy, this lottery, was widespread in other countries. Was it around the same time, and do we know if it, for, if it was for the same reason that it was introduced? I'm thinking that the reason why the specific policy was ch chosen has something to do with the, like what was not working before um, or what like in response to what was it introduced and was that similar in the other contexts? Um, and then the other question I had was about tax compliance rates. Um, it sounds like 68%, is that what you mentioned at the beginning? Um, was the tax compliance rate? That sounds pretty high to me um, to begin with. So in reference to Tarek's question about Egypt, I'm thinking in places that, like Egypt, for instance, I also look at Egypt. I think, I mean, I'd venture to say maybe like 15% of people pay their taxes in Egypt. A program like that would have radically different consequences, I think, in a place that has high compliance rates versus low compliance rates. Just uh, curious about your thoughts on this. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you. Yeah, I, I think probably the reasons the program was introduced in um, Montevideo relate to the form that it had, and um, it was one of the earliest. Pro it was the earliest program, as far as we know, in Latin America like this. Um, you know, I think subsequent programs have tried to attack the problem of compliance as well. And these interviews we did suggest that's what people think they're doing. Um, they, they do it in a little bit different form. Um, but amnesties, you know, in crisis countries were pretty widespread. They're widespread in Argentina too. Um, uh, so the reasons these, these exist in Brazil might be a little bit different, but I, I don't have too much to say about that, except I, I have no doubt you're right. You know, it must, it must be related to the, to the form of the, the problem. Um, when we started this, we thought tax compliance would be much higher than it actually is. Um, because this is Uruguay, which is supposed to, you know, it's not quite the Switzerland of Latin America, but it's something like that. Um, it's got all these great data um, and, a, and a thought to have a relatively ef efficient state, ef efficacious state, you know, um, uh, and, uh, and so to find that 70%, only 70% of taxpayers pay their taxes at, at any particular payment date, particularly given that their tax obligations are known with certainty and there's no kind of monitoring problem, seemed, seemed, seemed low. Um, now, that, remember, that's the measure that pay at, at any particular point in time. That's a good measure of compliance, but other measures like, you know, debts, average debts owed, you know, the average account in 2015 owed four past due tax payments. Um, only around 50% of taxpayers had been up to date, not just in the current payment, but over the previous year. You know, I mean, glass is half full or glass is half empty, but when you start from the presumption that Uruguay is a relatively efficacious state, we were su surprised um, to find such, such low um, tax compliance. Pleasantly surprised, I might add, because, you know, it suggests that it could generalize to, these, to Argentina, where compliance is even lower. And I wouldn't go so far as to say Egypt, but, um, <laughs> but, 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 but yeah, yeah, I mean, in other words, I think the, the idea that they're structurally good and structurally bad taxpayers probably exists in a lot of places, though, whatever the compliance rate on average. So I think given that it's a context in which there are both types, you know, one can learn something about you know, what induces compliance and, 
and you know that's important because it's linked to state capacity and one cares about that. So you end up getting very micro with these kinds of studies, but it links to like sort of big developmental themes that are important um, and, and that sustains my own interest in it. So I'll just end on that salvo. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate the feedback.